Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. This week I've got Bowen Greenwood, who is the head of the GOP. Is that right, in Montana? Executive director is the actual title. <laughs> Worker of first resort describes my job more accurately. <laughs> Worker of first resort, that's great. So what all have you been up to? I, when I first met you, you were actually in the Secretary of State's office, and that was when Brad Johnson was in office. So, I worked, I've worked in politics for a long time in and out of politics and some freelance writing. But uh, in between the Secretary of State's office and now, I did some time in the uh, uh, legislative session in 2009. And for a while there, in late 09 and very early 10, I was back to a job I had done earlier, working with folks who are deaf and hard of hearing hmm. in the telecommunications field. And then after that, I was back, I, I came on staff at the party in March of 2010 and have not had a moment's peace since. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it's been like. So let's talk about your past. You say you've been in politics for a long time. How did you get started? Well, you know, like a lot of 18-year-old kids, when I was 18, I was certain that I knew how to run the world and nobody else did, so I decided that I wanted to be in politics. Went off and got a degree to support that and came back to the state and expected them to immediately make me the party chairman. Surprisingly enough, that didn't happen, and uh, I got my start working on a state legislative campaign or three back in 1994. And, uh, then there was a, a house race in 95 and 96. Uh, interestingly enough, I lost, my candidate lost in the primary, and then I, I got to work for uh, the Hill campaign hmm. for a few short months before he got nominated for, or before he got elected to Congress for the first time. Uh, and then I was spent some time at the Yellowstone Art Museum and um, back to a campaign, off a campaign, on a campaign. Anybody who's worked in the business will tell you you have a job in even-numbered years, but not in odd-numbered years, and eventually wound up as the ED of the party. Oh, very cool. So politics has always been something that interests you. What really drew you into it? I mean, fixing things, obviously, but... <laughs> what? What drives you into this gig, I guess? Well, I think uh, when I started, it's an interesting evolution. When I started, I was uh, uh, ready to change the world. I was a, a fierce conservative ideologue and, and gung-ho, ready to just make all the difference. And slowly, over the course of a couple of campaigns, I became more like someone who, who is more interested in winning rather than in why we win. Mm. And <laughs> at the end of my time in the, in the Secretary of State's office, actually, when we had lost everything, uh, you know, the, we held no offices in Montana anywhere or anywhere else for that matter, and the Democrats had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, and the, the concept of winning was completely and utterly destroyed, I, I slowly began working my way back to caring about why it matters to win rather than just winning. And now I, I would describe myself as, I do this because there, there are things I believe in that I, I want to do for the people I live with in my, my community and my state. Well, that's cool. I think it's, I think it's an interesting evolution. Um, I wish more politicians would go through it, actually. Um, there's a lot of uh, acrimonious, uh, uncivil, non-debate that seems to be going on in our politics recently. And our last session was a, uh, a microcosm of that. And um, it was a disaster in many, many ways. And were you involved in the session other than ancillary? Or? You know, I was supporting, I, I was a supporting character in that play. I, I <laughs> came up every day just to run errands or, or see what I could do to help folks. Obviously, you know, everybody else was a legislator and I was just not even on staff for the legislature. I was just there, so I didn't do anything but take notes for people and run errands and get the copies and the coffee. But yes, I know what you're talking about. It was a very acrimonious session. Yeah, and um, I guess, so have you ever held office yourself? Um, well, once I, interestingly enough, once I did write myself in for precinct committee person and get elected by one vote, Hmm. So that was the last time I've held anything close to a public office. And and now you're running for something, and this is interesting because you're running on a writing campaign for 
the clerk of the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, if you, uh, I didn't just, realize we elected the clerks. That's interesting. <laughs> I'll just tell you the, as much of the story as you want, and I sure. invite you to cut me off as soon as I get boring. <laughs> Um, most folks don't know that we have an elected clerk of the Supreme Court. It's hmm. a very low-profile office. Uh, and oddly enough, it is a partisan office, which I don't understand why, but it is what it is. Um, <laughs> this is definitely one of those times where you look back at Montana law and go, what? <laughs> it has, the Democrat incumbent has held the job for years and years, almost as long as I've been alive. That's hmm. not quite true. <laughs> Half as long as I've been alive. Um, and very rarely is there a Republican candidate of any kind for this race. Hmm. So a number of us set about a recruitment effort trying to get somebody to run for this job. Nobody would, and I decided that I would run myself. And here's the embarrassing part of the story. I was in the Secretary of State's office on the closing day of filing, wanting to file at the last minute, and I took a phone call from a reporter and got a little fired up and started shouting some comments. And then they rang the bells for the close of filing while I was busy haranguing the reporter. So I dropped the ball. It was my fault. I did not file in time. Um, and I thought it was just a lost opportunity. But last week on Wednesday, a couple of lawyer friends of mine reminded me that they were, number one, writing me in, and that, number two, it was legally possible to nominate me this way. So. I decided to try and rectify my mistake. It's probably a long shot. It probably will never happen. But if it does happen, great news. So you're, this is for the primary election. This is not for the general. So you're that going to is be correct. written in. And if you, if you, is there anybody else that's yeah. been put up for the primary? Yeah. Or? The actual office that I am running for would be Republican nominee for the clerk of Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, I, technically, you know, in a primary election, that's the office everybody is running for, right. Republican nominee for governor or whatever. Democratic there is no other candidate in the Republican primary for this office. So it only takes one person to write your name in, and then you're good to go. Uh, that would be the ideal situation. Unfortunately, it's not actually the case. Um, the, as people are voting in their Republican primary ballot, whether at home or in the polling place, they will eventually come to a blank line on the ballot under the clerk of Supreme Court box. That's where you would write in my name. Uh, ordinarily, a write-in candidate must file a declaration of intent mm -hmm. in order for their votes to be counted. Right. However, in a case where there is no one else on the ballot for that office, the votes are counted regardless of whether or not the write-in declaration was filed. Oh. Um, so in this case, because there is no other candidate, it is possible to count write-in votes for me, even though I not only missed the regular filing deadline, but also the write-in filing deadline. Um, the way that law works, however, is I can only have my name placed on the ballot in the fall if uh, we manage to total 5% of the votes received by the last successful candidate, which in this case is Ed Smith in 2006, and the 5% number works out to 11,186. Hmm. So it's really a rare circumstance in politics where I'm not running against another person, I'm running against a number. We have to get 11,187 votes to place my name on the ballot. Interesting. So, and that's statewide, yes? That is statewide, yes. So what, we have a Supreme Court position that's not, a, it's a clerk position, so what exactly do they do? They schedule cases for the Supreme Court and presumably also answer the phone as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, and it really, obviously, I'm sure, is not a policy-making position. You know, uh, one does not get elected to clerk of the Montana Supreme Court and then immediately set out to repeal Obamacare. <laughs> no, it, it would seem like an odd yeah. place to start. It, it, it's, it is a clerk's job. You, you schedule cases, you help them with the paperwork, that sort of thing. Um, I sort of like that aspect of the job, actually. Hmm. So I think it, in the unlikely event that I actually win, I, I'm sure that I will be happy in that kind of a role. Very cool. So. You know, one of the things we're talking about, you've, you've, we have the deadlines for filing, and, and uh, people obviously have to get their campaigns going, and one of the things, how hard is it to get people, to recruit people for positions? I mean, you said you, you ended up running for this one, yeah, and you're because the, I the sort of, I did sort of drop the ball on this one, and it depends on the position, you know. Um, it's obviously not real hard to recruit people to run for governor. Uh, no, in fact, <laughs> we need a little bit different. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it is the the... The lower profile the office, the harder it is to recruit people for it, hmm. you know. Uh, and uh, in 
for example, legislative races, the more difficult the district, the harder it is to recruit people for it. Define difficult district. Well, the way redistricting works, you typically end up with districts that are considered quote-unquote safe for one party or the other. Uh -huh. um, it's extraordinarily unlikely that uh, a Republican is ever going to win any of the downtown Missoula districts. Uh, it's extraordinarily unlikely that a particularly liberal Democrat, anyway, is ever going to win the southeastern Montana district. <laughs> <laughs> there are, and there are other districts like that. Those are just two of the more glaring examples. So, you know, if you go to southeastern Montana, if Representative Randall decided not to run again and we had to recruit a new candidate down there, it would not be hard. You know, because everybody knows all you got to do is win the Republican primary and it's a done deal. Uh, on the other hand, if I go to downtown Missoula and I'm trying to recruit a candidate, it's extraordinarily hard to recruit them because they look at the vote totals in the last 10 elections and see that the Democrats have received 60 to 65 percent in every one, and what's the point of running for that? Ah, what's the point of wasting your time? Yeah. So uh, recruitment is easy or hard depending on the office, really. So how was it this last session, or this last, I guess, election cycle? <laughs> I don't know how it works on the other side. In our party, we have what we call a legislative campaign committee, which is composed of legislators who volunteer for the job during the last session. Uh, who are responsible for recruitment. Mm. So the, the truth is I didn't actually do a great deal of legislative recruiting myself. Um, I think a lot of that depends on mood as well. You know, uh, recruiting in 10 was extraordinarily easy. The mood of the country was seemed to be running in our favor and a lot of folks were eager to step up. Uh, it probably was not as easy this year as it was in 10, although we still had very little trouble getting a fairly good crop of candidates. Hmm. Interesting. So are, how are your races going? I mean, how does it look at this point for your side of the aisle? Well, we're going to win everything. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, yeah, it, the fact of the matter is, obviously, the, the Senate race is going to run effectively 45-45 or something close to it uh, right up until Election Day. And then... Yeah, we'll I wouldn't see. want to be working in one of the campaigns. <laughs> barring, a, uh, barring some kind of major scandal or major change of affairs, we expect both, you know, I expect personally that race will run pretty close right up until the end. And it, this will not surprise you, but I believe we're going to end up winning it. <laughs> um, but I'm sure that my counterparts on the other side of the aisle will give you a different answer to that. I, th I think the governor's race is a very similar situation. It'll run effectively 45-45 right up until the end. And so uh, now here's the, the interesting thing, because we are before the primaries, and they, what, two weeks before they do? Before uh, they announce? Close to three, I think, but I could be wrong about so that. June, two to three. June, June 5th, 5th yes. Okay. So June 5th, that happens, and that's when we find out who all the candidates will be for everything going on. And um, but how does it look for your candidates now? Have, have things starting to pull away? You've got an idea of who's going to be where. Or? Well, I'm pretty sure Steve Daines is likely to get nominated for the House. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you know the truth of the matter is uh, that this is an awkward question for me because the party does not take sides in a contested primary. Right. And I'm not asking you yeah. to tell me who. I'm asking is does it is it becoming? Excuse me as I lose my ability to use my lips. Um, as you get closer and closer to primary day, does it become more obvious who's you know, going to win? Does it become easier to tell what's going on? Are you able to then start doing your planning for after primaries? The very little... Are there any surprises coming up for you? That's a nice well, way of putting it. This, this, this is what I'll tell you, is that it's a seven-way primary in the governor's office, and I wouldn't put a bet down one way or another. Um, I think there, there's been pulling data out on that race. Uh, it has all been fairly consistent in terms of which Republican draws the most support. Those are facts that are in the public domain, and I don't know much more than that. Uh, yeah. Interesting. So you guys obviously can't pick what you've just said. You can't pick before the primary. But once the primary happens, obviously you throw the full weight of the party behind these candidates. What changes for you? Um, 
Well, uh, number one, I'll stop having candidates call me the day after radio interviews complaining about how I'm biased because I mentioned polling data. Um, <laughs> oh, you mentioned a fact and it pissed them off. That's lovely. Uh, you know, it'll get, my life will become much less socially awkward because I spend a lot of time assuring people that I don't have a preference, that you know, whatever vote I cast, you'll never see it in my day-to-day -day work, and I, I think I've been fairly good about that. And, and so my life will get less socially awkward in terms of the gubernatorial campaign. Mm. We will, uh, we have already started a little bit of uh, advertising in the governor, governor's race, just contrast advertising on Steve Bullock. And I assume that once we have a nominee, we will start, we'll be able to start doing some favorable advertising in favor of whoever our nominee is. So things will get more expensive. I'll have to start paying for more ads. Um, most of the, the most effective way to use a political party organization in uh, advertising, third party advertising, is usually actually direct mail. Mm. Because we as a party have a nonprofit level permit with the post office. Right. Whereas if the campaign paid their own mail, they'd be using an ordinary business permit. So it saves money to send it through us. Uh, you'll probably will see us doing an insane volume of mail in the fall. Um, mm, my favorite thing in the whole world. <laughs> yes, well, everybody loves it, but... Uh, I don't understand it. I, it, it. Not to sidetrack you, but I've gotten four or five pieces recently, and they're massive pieces. Um, one was the Tim Fox piece, it was like, and then the other was the Aspen Lighter piece, and they're like four pages, hugely printed, glossy, both sides. I'm like, I do print work, I know how much this costs. I'm like, that's insane. And... and, and I'm not looking forward to getting more of them. Although it'll hopefully help the post office. Well, uh, yeah, well, that's a Keep them from valid closing. point. Um, I don't, obviously, I, I, it's been a long time since I did actual campaign work. But were it my campaign, uh, what I would actually do is, spend a, a, is go cheaper on the postcards and send more of them. Mm. Uh, that's how I personally would do it. Obviously, I'm not managing either Aspen Lighter or Fox's campaign, so I, I don't know why they made the decision they did. Uh, they may have been targeting very high information voters who actually want to study the candidates, and I don't know. But you're right, they were, they were sort of surprising pieces in terms of, I think most of us who follow politics have usually expected to see uh, a, a million, uh, eight, Eight and a half by five you know, postcards. Or four by six postcards. Yeah. You know, it, I, the thing is, is that there's so many things that, that come in the mail that are just thrown out, and you've got that two seconds to review something. So really, if you're going to send something, make sure I get your name and know why I'm voting for you. Mm -hmm. But if you're sending me something that's going to require me to sit down and read it, chances are I've either, if I'm interested in you, I've already gone to your website. Mm -hmm. So the information better be there. And two... I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you and I come from the same place on that. I, I, well, except that it's my business, so I had to go through and read everything just to see what was in it. But were I, you know, if I had to... For the normal voter. Uh, for the normal voter, uh, you, you know, two seconds as they throw it in the trash is what you get. Right, and so I don't, I don't understand that. So that's interesting. What about, how is polling done in Montana? And the reason I'm asking this is because I've had a cell phone as my only phone for... Ever? Um, well, since 95. And I've never gotten a call on a poll, ever. And I, I think it's interesting because there are so many of my friends, especially people younger than me, that uh, that is the only way they communicate. They never have any intention of getting a landline. And as far as I know, the polls are still only done with landlines. Uh, you know, it's an interesting question. And I know that there are some polling companies that do cell phones and some that do not. And I don't... I'm not a pollster. I don't know exactly how it works. I think that the, when they don't, they have some kind of math that they apply to their results that tries to predict how cell phone users would have answered if they had called them. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I'm really kind of pulling stuff out of my ear. This is <laughs> outside my field of expertise. But it's, a, it's an interesting question, and I know that the different polling companies try different means to adapt to it. The truth of the matter is that at this point, we actually do almost no polling hmm. out of my office. Uh, and that's because, number one, we don't have a rule in the contested primary, and the Reberg people can afford their own polls. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, number two, we're not really an active advertiser or voter contact operation yet, so we don't need to do a lot of polling. I, I don't know. You know, when we do, I will be 
hearing from the pollsters who want the business about what sort of methodology they use to account for that, but I don't know interesting. the answer to that question. Well, I think it's, it's becoming more interesting because, of course, as the voting, as voting skews towards the middle of the age range in the country, it'll become more about how do you contact a legitimate mathematical yeah. or statistically valid group. It's a very interesting question, and there's a part of me that wishes I had studied polling in college because, it, <laughs> number one, it's an easy way to get rich, judging by how much they charge, and mm -hmm. number two, it's just a fascinating science, you know, trying to come up with an accurate number of what the voting public really thinks. So with polling that you've worked with in the past on other campaigns, how accurate has it been? Well, there's a difference. There's two kinds of polls. You know, there are polls that are intended to be released publicly, like the public policy polling for mm -hmm. things, for example, um, like the New York Times polls or CBS or CNN. They do polls that are intended to be released publicly. And, you know, those will, those will be accurate, you know, within four or five points, I suppose. But they are designed for a story. You know, they're, they're, trying to, right. they're trying to sell a story. Uh, CNN wants people to look at their, poll, at their poll story and see, you know, oh, uh, Obama's up, Obama's down. You know, they're trying to attract viewers. There's a, an internal poll that is not intended ever to be seen except by campaign professionals. I ex would expect to see being much more accurate just because we need to know. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, to go out and say, do you support the repeal of Obamacare? It's another thing to find out exactly, you know, um, do you know what I mean by Obamacare? Huh. Do you know uh, what things are in Obamacare? Uh, do you support full repeal, partial repeal? You, you know, it, when you need to know, you get a more accurate poll. When you're just trying to sell a story, it's something else. Right. So polling is interesting, and you've got candidates in place, and the primary is coming up, and your summer is going to be completely ruined with <laughs> politics. And if, what is it that you guys are going to do? Well, I, okay, I, I'm not asking a strategy question, but what is it that the party really needs to do over the summer to win? The uh, the surprising thing I came out of a I came out of a background where I thought the press secretaries were the ones who made everything happen in politics because they were the ones who talked to the reporters and dictated what the public was reading in their newspaper. That was my thing when I was 18. I was going to go be a big political press secretary. Um, it's surprising how poorly that dictating the <laughs> news stories worked out. But uh, politics has changed since then, if it ever was like it. And we, are, we now operate in a world where we literally set the goal of getting 240,000 Republicans to the polls one by one at a time, counting them. And our goal over the course of the summer, and frankly, it's been going on for months and months now, our goal is to find out of you know, 460 to 470,000 electorate in Montana, where are 240,000 Republicans? How many of them are going to go into the ballot box and mark every Republican no matter what we do? Take them off the list, they're not worth our time. Uh, how many of them are going to go in and mark the Democrat? Take them off the list. Uh, neither of those is worth the money it takes to contact them because you're not changing minds. Because they're not um, thinking while yeah. they're voting. Find, exactly, they're party line voters. And so there's very little point in spending persuasion money on them. So, uh, and you know, so our goal is to count, you know, find out where, where can we find the 20,000 actual persuadable voters who are going to decide the difference between Reberg and Tester. Uh -huh. uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not by much. You know, those 20 to 30,000 guys are going to get millions and millions of dollars spent on advertising to them rather than people Whether like they realize me. it's yeah. focused on them or not. <laughs> well, people like me, nobody wants to spend any money reaching me, but they do want to spend money reaching the independent voters. Interesting. So... And independence, how do you designate between somebody who's an independent but registered with one of the parties and who's actually an independent? And that is the, that is the goal. Um, and, and this is not my field either. I just, I know the results and I appreciate them. I don't know how it's done. And if I'm going, you know, if I'm, if I'm saying stuff you already know, please feel free to stop no, me. No, absolutely. But there's a science called micro-targeting. Uh, that if attempts to determine some kind of real truth about where a person really stands politically. Uh, if one were to go out and find that people who own a Chevy truck, own a shotgun, have a dog, and get a hunting license, and have a concealed carry permit, almost always vote Republican, and the guy tells you, I'm an independent, 
but you can find from public information that he has a concealed carry permit, he has a Chevy truck, he has a shotgun, you mark him as a Republican because you expect he's going to vote like all the other guys who meet those criteria. And I, you know, I just pulled those out of my ear. It's, those right. are not necessarily the real criteria. But it is a, an attempt to divine from other characteristics of a person what their voting behavior is going to be like. And that, as I say, is the whole goal, is to try and identify those people who are, you know, this guy says he's independent, but he is really going to vote Democrat. So we need to be careful about wasting too much money on voter contact to an audience we can't win. This guy says he's a Republican, but he really is sort of a Republican light, and he may be swayed by Tester's negative ads on Denny, so we got to be careful to talk to him and keep him on board, that, that sort of thing. So how do you feel about, speaking of negative ads, <laughs> nice segue, um, how do you feel about uh, how campaigns are run in this day and age? I mean, and I only have memories going back to Reagan, really. And I don't remember, I think it's progressively gotten worse. I, I know it's progressively gotten longer. I mean, it used to be you actually had a year off between campaigns, and then election year was election year, and non-election year our government actually functioned, and now we've got a government that elections for two years and we don't get anything done. We're still busy talking about uh, uh, Obama and Romney, and now we have, we're busy planning the Schweitzer 16 campaign. <laughs> <laughs> It never ends. It doesn't end, and it's 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 for me. It's frustrating. And um, one of the reasons that I started this podcast is because the last session was so frustrating. But politics in general is frustrating because there seems to be a lot of um, they're doing it wrong and pointing fingers and and not actually making a decision. And and how does that help us as a country? How does that help us as a people? My personal feeling is that well. It, how does that help us? My personal feeling is that I would like to see more respect among the different sides in politics. And I don't, I don't know the way there. You know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I had a, <laughs> hey, Ted, I, I hope you don't get mad at me for telling this story. I had a <laughs> wonderful experience last summer where uh, the executive director of the, De the Democrat Party, Ted Dick, and I were both invited to come speak to a Boys State College, mm. uh, Boys State group at, at Carroll. And Ted had the amazing idea of barring any kind of recording device. You know, no cameras, no, nobody cell phoning it, uh, all that stuff. And we had a great discussion uh, of the real beliefs uh, behind politics. You know, it was like my old college days in the debating society where you really talked about, is this right? Why do we do this? And I, I wish politics was like that. You know, where, so where, why did you ban recording devices? Because as soon as it's possible that it's going to be YouTubed, then now, now let's imagine a hypothetical here. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that Ted said anything like this. But let's, in a hypothetical situation, let's say we're having a, a debate about Social Security. And, and let's imagine hypothetically that Ted Dick in a, the course of an honest debate said, you know, I understand that Social Security can't really be sustained for longer than the next 20 years as it is. Boom, you're on YouTube. Democrats know Social Security can't be sustained. They're lying to you, seniors, and it becomes a negative ad, and you get weaponized against your own side. Uh, uh, where there is no recording device, you can just talk without worrying about talking points, without worrying about being made into the day's scandal, a la, <laughs> you know, the whoever it was that criticized Dan Romney about not working, uh, whatever. You know, this, this is the sort of thing that happens to anybody who's theoretically involved, is that you have to guard what you say very carefully, lest you be made, made into the, this, the scandal du jour. <laughs> I don't know that I'd survive politics because I don't watch what I say that often. Although I have made it, I would like to point out this is the... I think it's the 16th show, and I've managed to make it through without breaking any of the FCC rules, and I'm not even on the air. So, um, so I do understand that. And, and I know when I was talking to you about coming on the show, that was one of your concerns, is how do you get on here without being weaponized? Yeah. And, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know. There's no way to protect it and let the information be free. Um, at some level, though, I would expect that you can look at somebody and go, really? That's what you're going to pull together? And dismiss them, because if they're not going to have the respect to say... We can have an honest discussion and we can acknowledge the things that are wrong from both sides because it's not a black and white issue. And, you know, Social Security is a great one to discuss. There's tons of things that do need to be fixed about it, but it doesn't need to go away either. You know, it can't just be gutted and left alone. So there's, you know, there's got to be give and take on both sides. And if we're not willing to sit down and have those discussions, we can't actually solve them. So it, 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 what's funny is it comes back to um, a, a statement made by Scalia uh, 
the justice mm -hmm. on the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, um, which is such an odd thing for me to know that I carry around this quote from Scalia, and it is one of the ones that you know I pull out all the time. But it's um, let's see if I remember right. It's a um, democracy requires a certain level of courage. You have to if you can't stand up and say what you believe, you don't actually believe it. Mm -hmm. And you know it, it's. Yeah, you could be the scandal du jour, but I think if some people would, and, and no offense to uh, Mr. Dick or to you, but I think if some people would suck up and, you know, yeah, you have to wear the target for a couple of days, but it's the only way we're going to change it if you both would do it. Mm -hmm. You know, we could change the way politics actually works. It doesn't have to be this acrimonious attack all the time. That, that would be my dream situation. And, you know, it's different in my case because, uh, in Ted's case too, I carry the the... Republican executive director title. So right. if I run my mouth off, it's not me. I can't be unelected. But what you can do is use that to try and tar all Republicans. Uh, you know, in my fantasy world, someday where I'm elected to the legislature or something like that, I hope that I would be a more courageous person. I hope that I would have the opportunity to say, I'm here to vote this way and to work on this problem. And if the people don't want me, to work on this problem or to be honest and have a discussion with it, I want them to elect someone else next time. I'm not afraid to lose if I can just come here and say what I need, think needs to be said about Social Security or whatever else. I hope I will be that kind of person someday, but so far I have not had the opportunity to be elected myself. I'm only a staff person for someone else. So you're, but you do have the writing campaign and if you get elected, that obviously takes precedence to leave the party position. I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. You know, I, I assume that in the unlikely event I am actually elected, I will go and be the clerk of Supreme Court. And fortunately, there are a good and healthy number of young folks coming up through the political woodwork now who could take my place very well. Um, so, so, so talk about that a little bit. I know the Republicans have like the young Republican groups on campus and um, other recruiting efforts in the area. How do you coordinate those? What exactly do, is your outreach with those? Uh, it's hilarious that you su suggest coordinating them. Um, <laughs> what, is that a bad word? No, 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 no. It's just that we would like to be much more coordinated than we are. Um, I, you know, for example, I always have a, a special rate for college Republicans and young Republicans at our kickoffs and, and conventions and things like that. And we like to build a sort of symbiotic relationship where we can get a few CRs or YRs in uh, to the convention gratis in exchange for working, you know, and helping with the platform plank conventions or the presidential delegate selection. It's an educational opportunity for them to say, you know, I helped work on the delegates who voted, uh, who went to Tampa to vote for Mitt Romney and or Ron Paul, hypothetically. Um, yeah, <laughs> Do you or, want to discuss national <laughs> politics? Heaven help me. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for CRs to get into the convention and do some work that they will really benefit from later on when they uh, are ready to get out of college and be a staffer themselves. And it's a great opportunity for us to get some work done that needs doing and not have to pay someone. <laughs> Volunteers, yay. yeah. So, you know, we like to build that kind of an operation where, where we, everybody benefits mutually. You usually see in every campaign the CRs find one or two candidates who particularly excite them. Uh, and, you know, they usually will go and give their volunteer time to of their own accord. And that gives them a very valuable campaign experience just to avoid crossing any wires for the 12 cycle, I'll say that in 2008, all of them were very much involved, in, or a lot of them were very much involved in the Fox campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I, it's sort of a mystery to me how that symbiosis occurs, but there's usually one or two candidates who really attract the young vote, and they mm -hmm. go to work for them. Interesting. So, now, this, how does the state party organization, and I, and I wonder if this is the same between the Democrats and the Republicans, how does the state party organization interface with the county? Organizations, because <laughs> um, I've been to county yeah. meetings. <laughs> the <laughs> theoretical way this works is that Republican voters in the primary on June fifth will elect precinct committee people. Precinct committee people will elect county officers. County officers will go to the state central committee meeting and elect state officers. State officers will hire me, and I work for them. And thus, by extension, back through that chain, I work for the Republican voters in Montana. Hmm. Um, in theory. It's actually, you know, people keep telling me, why can't you just make X and such county shut up and stop causing trouble? 
when in actuality, I work for them. They don't work for me. <laughs> in theory, the counties are the, the electors of the state uh, of the state central committee officers, and the officers are the people who hire me. So that, that's the theoretical relationship between the two organizations. In practice, every county is a little bit different. You know, Lewis and Clark County, for example, by virtue of being right here in Helena, you often find that the Lewis and Clark County precinct committee people and officers are very involved in campaigns, uh, very involved in state central committee affairs, and we work together, in some cases, on a daily basis. In the, um, let's say, for example, uh, the Stillwater County Republican Party, we talk only because you know I worked for the session when David Howard was there, so I know him, and you know we'll discuss things now and then. Or David has a particular passion for helping central committees get more organized, so he likes to talk to me about that sort of thing. But you know, it's only because of a pre-existing relationship. I might right. otherwise never hear from the Stillwater County Republican Central Committee. There are many of them out there who go about their affairs, you know, raising money, spending it to help elect their local legislative candidates, and. You know, never see me except at the convention, really. And when is your convention? Our convention is June 14th through 16th in Missoula. In Missoula? It's, uh... That's <laughs> like the Democrats having theirs in North Carolina. It's very bizarre. <laughs> yeah, well, it's... Uh, in our case, uh, presidential election years are a complicated convention for us, and we have really gotten to the point where the Missoula Hilton Garden is effectively the last hotel in the state we can go to for presidential conventions. Why? Um... We need one giant meeting room for, or excuse me, we need 11, no, seven, six per day, uh, fairly substantial meeting rooms for platform plank committees. And then we need to be able to have one large meeting room where they're putting on the, uh, the big whole delegate convention while at the same time they're prepping the, another large meeting room for dinner. Uh, and then the next day we need uh, the same thing. So basically what we need is two we need a hotel with at least two meeting rooms capable of accommodating 350 people. Mm. And those are fewer and fewer. And Interesting. The more people we get, the harder it is to do. <laughs> We're preparing for 400 people at this thing. And wow. that's entirely due to the interest in the presidential race. And so now at the meeting, you're going to be doing the plank. And how does that work? Are you guys prepping it now? Do you just take what you did before and go through each item, line item? The, the party platform. Yes. Um, we, the, 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 the actual way it works is that the platform exists now, and in theory there are approximately 12 or 13 different planks. I can't remember how many. And each plank will go out to a committee focused on that plank. Um, and that committee will say, you know, okay, here is... It seems that we have taken a position in favor of hypothetically. I don't actually, <laughs> I don't actually know if this is in there, but let's say we've taken a position in favor of the flat tax. And meanwhile, the Romney and/or Ron Paul campaign is not in favor of a flat tax. They're in favor of a two-tier tax system. So let's maybe adjust the platform to match what the presidential candidate is talking about. And, and do they um, often go in that way, or do they sometimes go, nope? Yeah, <laughs> We're well, going the, our own. you know that. The, it can go either way. You know, there, our National Affairs Platform Plank Committee, for example, is uh, famously contentious. <laughs> In 2010, the first time I worked on it, and that, that's the plank of the platform that has uh, positions on the United Nations, for example, and uh, mm. illegal immigration and things of that nature. Um, when, I when I worked that convention in 2010, which was my first convention, we had about three hours for each plank committee meeting and they burned up their first three hours and weren't even a third of the way through and were spending the entire rest of the convention finding corners of the hotel where they could carry on their debate. So, you know, there are some that are fiercely independent and will not listen to any guidance. And there are others that are very keen to make sure the platform is in line with the national party or the presidential campaign. So if, if and these are the, the county people that come. And, and delegates this. to the platform convention are county central committee members and candidates for offices at the legislative level and above. Hmm. So how do they get onto each of the committees, I guess? Or are there standing committees? Uh, they make requests, and if, there, if space is available, we try to meet those. Ah. So but do you pick them? or uh, I do with you know, the party chair and some of our other staff. We all work together on it. Very cool. 
So it, it sounds like it's a, a very unwieldy beast, but it, it probably works as best it can. You know, I, I am not ashamed to say it. I've said it many times before. I would like to see the party platform be we support lower taxes, uh, uh, lower, smaller government, and, and uh, strong national defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and oh, one families. I would like to have one, a one-sentence party platform and be done with it because... Let's face it, you get to the legislature and nobody votes according to the platform anyway, so for what purpose does it exist? Um, but I can't get anyone to go along with me on that yet. So you get everybody together for the convention, you do the platform, and you elect the delegates that are going to go to national and all of that. What else, what else about the Republican convention is worthwhile? We will also have... <laughs> worthwhile depends on one's perspective. Well, I'm asking uh, you. Yeah, I'm we not also, asking me. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a state central committee meeting, uh, and that will may change party rules. You know, for example, um, I have this daydream where eventually we would bind our delegates to the results of the primary. Uh, so that I would not have to deal with fights over who gets to Montana's presidential delegates at the convention, and we could just say, sorry, dude, it's decided by the primary. Uh, that's not in the rules right now. It's hypothetically possible that the state central committee could change that. Uh, they will also elect a couple of different party officers, the national committee man and the national committee woman, and they'll give a lot of speeches. Hmm. Um, so state central committee meeting, platform, Delegates. Those are the three main events at this thing. There will, you know, there'll be uh, various side meetings and uh, campaigns will hold hospitality suites. It's by far the most entertaining part of the convention. Ah. <laughs> so, in in the big statewide campaigns, obviously this happens after uh, it's primary, so we know exactly yes. who's running for what, and everybody kind of knows whether they're on board or not. Um, are you looking forward to the convention, or is it just kind of you're thinking, well, it could be fun, but it's a lot of work? Our convention goes from June 14th through 16th, and I'm eagerly awaiting June 17th. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. So you guys really only have, what, 10 days between? Yeah, it's very short. Or nine days, I nine, guess? Nine days to get, you know, once we get a nominee, to get everything straightened out for the convention. <sighs> uh, a complete side note about Republican politics that people may or may not care about our system for electing delegates to the national convention, where people will vote for Mitt Romney or Ron Paul, is built around a weighted voting system where counties get as many votes for delegates as they cast votes for the successful candidate for governor. So I get nine days to figure out how many votes did the nominee get in Yellowstone County, how many delegates is Yellowstone County sending, Okay, so divide 5,000 votes from Yellowstone County by 10 delegates from Yellowstone County. Each one of their votes counts 500 times, except it's never round numbers like that. <laughs> your, your vote counts 346.2. Yes, exactly. <coughs> oh, So that's, the, that's nightmare. the nightmare of the nine days for me more than anything else is that weighted voting system. So you have to get the numbers from the Secretary of State's office after they've com compiled everything and ratified everything, which that can take 48 hours. Yeah. We might be getting that on June 13th. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to get all that in and do all the oh, all the math. Now, so say that, you know, candidate A got, obviously is now in the primary. They won the primary. But a county voted for candidate B. So only the votes for candidate A are going to count towards the... Exactly. Candidate so B, if they had three... Uh, um, candidate B who lost the overall primary mm -hmm. got 3,000 votes in Yellowstone County. Candidate A, who won the overall primary, only got 2,000 votes in Yellowstone County. Those 2,000 votes determine how many votes Yellowstone gets, not the 3,000. Wow. Yeah. It's not how I would set it up if I were redoing the bylaws. I don't know. I, that's, that's really bizarre because that means that you don't really... I mean, if you're really playing politics, and this is you know the gamesmanship part of it, if you're really playing politics, you never want to vote for who's not going to win because you'd screw yourself over going into the yeah, yeah. If state you care convention. about more delegates for picking people for presidential purposes, you should cast your vote for the winning gubernatorial candidate if you can figure that out in advance, <laughs> which is a great way to make money on bets. Um, yeah. In, in, interesting. I, I, we have so many interesting rules and, and, and odd things about government in the state that just it's, makes me... It's really question what people... You know, we have a medical marijuana law, but I'm pretty sure you couldn't be on it and write our laws. Because <laughs> I don't think you could come up with that convoluted mess while you were high. <laughs> it's, uh, 
It's a point of great frustration in my life that many different campaigns, or more often their supporters than the campaigns, honestly, believe that the the party, quote unquote, the party is busy trying to uh, put our thumb on the scale for one of the governor candidates or something like that. And meanwhile, I'm busy with uh, what does the registration form for conventions say about the timing of the platform plank committee meetings, or how can we work out the weighted voting system? And it barely even enters our consciousness on a day-to-day -day level that there is an election going on which we'll have to vote in someday. Well. And, and, and that's probably smart because if you get too tied up into it, you do want to try to affect the outcome. Um, so looking at the other side, how do you see politics at this point? How do you see, are their campaigns running well? Where do you see that you guys are strong? Where do you see that you guys uh, need to work? You know, the honest truth is that, uh, and I, I remember, uh, this is something I've pondered for a while, Democrats and Republicans really look at politics differently. And that'll seem obvious, uh, you know, but what I mean is we look at the business of winning elections differently. Uh, I, I've always remembered, and hi, Senator Cooney, I hope you hear this. In 2000, <laughs> I thought Senator Cooney was the Democrats' far and away best choice to run against our guy. Um, run against, uh, against who? Judy Martz, I mean, sorry. Mm. Uh, he's, you know, clean cut, sharp looking guy, you know, very... Uh, professional, which Montanans like, and you know, had a good set of policy positions. I thought Cooney was by far and away the favorite choice, and he didn't even come in third, I don't think. And I never understood why they didn't nominate him, and they instead nominated Mark O'Keefe. Um, and uh, meanwhile, I'm sure the Democrats say the same, the same things about us. How could they possibly come up with uh, you know, Roy Brown for governor or something like that? So. We, we, we see things differently, and I see things that, uh, for example, that the tester campaign or that the Democrat Central Committee is doing that I just don't understand. And they, I'm sure, say the same thing about me. So I'm, uh, you know, take it as for what it's worth. It's just my opinion of how the things should be done. But they're dropping a bunch of really cheap <laughs> flyers in legislative races. Stuff that you know is made on a photocopier and not a high quality one at that, and, and just really looks bad and unprofessional. And I don't see the point of dropping an unprofessional, unmemorable piece in April when the election is not until November. Uh, you know, right now, for example, Tom Burnett's district uh, in Bozeman, they dropped one of those style pieces on Tom, and right now most of the people who will vote in that race have already forgotten it ever showed up. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't get the strategy of dropping voter contact pieces three weeks apart, and somebody's probably going to hit me for saying all this stuff. <laughs> they ought <laughs> not to know somebody on your side that's doing um, the same thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, I'm sure there is, and that's what I mean. I, I, I'm sure they have equal criticisms of my side, and I'm sure there are things we do that don't make sense to them. So if you ask me, you know, what are... What are their efforts looking like? I think their legislative strategy is one that I don't fully have my head wrapped around yet. Um, Tester and Reberg is not a mystery. And grab hold of all the cash you can get and spend it on TV. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I find the House primary fascinating to watch on the Democrat side because it's there. There's not a dominant insider candidate that I can see. I mean, obviously, there is one candidate on the Democrat side that has the support of the Bacchus machine. That's not a mystery. Um, Who's that? <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I honestly ask that. I've had Stutz and um, Diane Smith on, Rob Stutz and Diane Smith on the show, and great candidates. I went and saw their uh, candidates debate in Missoula. And um, across the board, I thought they had a really strong slate. I, not everybody. There, there, you know, but it wasn't like when I was watching the, gov the Republican governors and thinking, wow. <laughs> the perception so, on our side is that Kim Gillen is Bacchus's candidate. Okay. Uh, keeping in mind that I'm someone who probably spoke to Kim Gillen once in passing during the session, so I could be completely off base and totally wrong. It happens with alarming frequency. <laughs> but that, you know, my perception is that there's the Bacchus establishment candidate out there, but not really blowing it away, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then there's uh, two or three who could make a claim to being the, the liberal base candidate, um, and neither of them is really opening it, or none of those three or however many are really opening it up and blowing it away. And 
It's, it's just really interesting to watch. So if you had the choice of the, the, the I guess there's seven, seven, eight? Hmm. There's at least seven on our side for governor. And Well, I'm, I'm talking about for, the, for representative. If you had the choice, who would you choose to go up against? Oh. <laughs> well, now, see, when I say this, I'm going to offend somebody. Uh, it's uh, politics. People are going to be yeah, offended. Whatever, uh, whichever Democrat I say anything about is going to... You know, Sam Rankin uh, has a name that goes back a long ways in Montana politics. He's been around a while. Is he related to Jeanette? I, I don't know that, but I know Sam Rankin has run for office himself before. Mm -hmm. And that is, has a surprising level of power. Um, it's, you know, for example, Kelleher, you know, he, mm -hmm. uh, did very little advertising and yet won the Senate primary because he'd been on the ballot forever and a day. Um, <laughs> every, and, and every, so, every year he runs you know, it would not surprise me, uh, honestly, uh, to see Sam Rankin come out of that. I think if I had to choose an opponent, I, I, I think it would, we would have the most opportunity of success running against a Stutz campaign, for example just based on the decision not to raise all that much money. Um, yeah, he strikes me as a fine fellow. You know, I, I think, I, I wish him no ill will. It's just based on what he publicly states about his campaign strategy, it seems unlikely to be successful in November. And so if you're interested in maximizing your potential for victory, that looks like the candidate I would choose. Um, I'm, dreading my phone tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, this doesn't come out until Wednesday, okay, so, so you should be fine. The, uh, It'll be Thursday morning. Yeah, I, I met, actually, Frankie Wilmer once mm -hmm. during the last session. and no, She's been on the show, too, just last week. <laughs> found her very entertaining to talk to. Uh, again, we just see politics completely differently, not only in terms of ideology, but in terms of producing successful outcomes. Mm. So it might kind of be interesting to run against Frankie in the sense that uh, you know, I've talked to her, I've heard her talk about legislative strategy and things like that, and it would be interesting to watch that play out. Uh, yeah, those are the two I would most most point out as people who would fascinate me in a general election race. Well, that's interesting. And then on your side, who's all running on your side? Danes is the presumed candidate, yeah. but... Danes is far and away the front runner. Um, there's a uh, Eric Broston here in Helena, mm. who uh, I think... Well, found himself treated rather unkindly over the subject of his interest in the uh, strategic defense initiative. A lot of people started calling him the Star Wars candidate. I didn't think that was very fair. Uh. Uh, and then there's a, and this is really going to get me in trouble, there's a young gentleman from, uh, who is a veteran and a very highly respectable young fellow named Vince Melkoff, I think, but I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, who is really making a uh, concerted effort to win the support of the Paul community, and mm. we'll see how well he does. Uh, Melkus, that's it. Hmm. So, and where's he out of? Uh, the southeast. I think it might be Hardin or that area. So the interesting thing about this race, and you know, it's an open seat because Reberg has obviously decided that he's going to go after testers. So we have this open seat, no incumbents in it, and it has been the most understated set of primary campaigns that I've ever, ever, ever come across. And the only reason I say that is because I've not had anything thrown in my face. I haven't gotten a mailer from them. I haven't gotten emails from them. And every bit of communication that I've had has been because of the show. It's not been because I've been out there. So it, it seems very bizarre to me that they've been doing this stuff and it seems so, it seems very focused to only people who are interested in politics on both sides. And I'm wondering why. <laughs> Eh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, well, I know the answer on our side is because Steve Daines is so heavily favored to win. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't feel any concern about saying that, whereas I would feel some concern about naming one of the governor candidates being heavily favored to win just because, you know, Steve Daines' support is so broad and deep. Uh, he, it would be very unlikely for him not to win the primary. Uh, so, you know, that's easy to explain on our side. Well, and, and that's what everybody has said on the other side, too. When everybody that I've talked to, them, the presumptive is Danes. So. Uh, on the Democrat side, I, again, I don't necessarily always have the same thoughts about how to do voter contact that they do. So they might be doing something that I don't understand or even have a grasp on. But 
from what I can see, you're right. I haven't seen anything until Kim, Kim Gillen started placing ads right now. Mm. Uh, YouTube videos aren't going to win you a race, in my opinion, but <laughs> well, they especially do with, with alarming frequency. Well, and, you, you know, Stutz's campaign, and Rob is a great guy, but his campaign is relying a lot on social media, and we're still, you know, as a state, our penetration for broadband internet is still less than 60%. You know, it's... The social media is one of the things that's most fascinating in terms of how we get a grip on it. You know, right now, and I, I, you know, I've made my my little jokes about this in public, so I'm not ashamed to say it. <laughs> I have the great pleasure of having officially, quote unquote, liked John Tester on Facebook, my kingdom for another word to describe that, um, and not liked Steve Bullock or some of the other major Democrat candidates which makes me a prime target for all their Facebook advertising, which gives me the chance to click and click and click and cost them a buck every time. And I'm sure the other side is doing that to us, too. Uh, so what I'm saying is Facebook advertising so far, it has not been figured out in a way that actually delivers votes. Well, and in, in my life, in my real life, you know, part of what I do is manage social media for a couple of different companies. And one of the things that I've found is the harder you work at it, the less it works for you. It's, it's much more sort of the... If you sit back and just let it be and keep an eye on it and hand it the right pieces and let it deal with it, things go better. I've watched so many campaigns recently for major advertisers just absolutely blow up in their face. I mean, McDonald's got fried. Coca-Cola got fried. Mattel awesome. got fried. That's it's, an awesome pun there. McDonald's got fried. <laughs> <laughs> I worked hard at it. Yeah. Um, but I, the McDonald's one is a, is a great study in what can go wrong. They were talking about, you know, have this hashtag on Twitter, mm -hmm. you know, and tell us about your great experiences at McDonald's. And people <laughs> turned around and told about their worst experience. And, if, and of course, you give people a chance to talk, and they're going to tell you about the things that bother them first. Yeah. Well, you got to, yeah. You know, that's human nature. It's, it's what we do. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. I think it's, you know, for some of the companies that I've worked with, and they're smaller companies, but it's very much a matter of, you know what, just be calm with it and let it, let it grow on its own organically because the people that are going to get involved with you and, and like you or follow you on Twitter or whatever it is that they have to do, you know, what is it that you do on Google Plus? You sit near. You join a circle and sing Kumbaya. Um, whatever it is that you're going to do, that they're going to do, let them decide to do it on their own. They're far more likely to then follow you when you decide to do something that's a little more iffy. Rather than setting it up to, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to take the world by storm because the world's going to turn around and go, oh, aren't you pretty? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I find it interesting. I tend to block ads from Facebook. Uh, I, I've heard that's possible to do, but it would take away my chance to click on the other side's ads. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Let's see, social media has been, obviously it's been, last year it blew up in the session, Twitter was huge, um, Facebook has been used very well. How are candidates on your side you know, embracing it now? Because they didn't in the session. There was, uh, Mike Miller was really one of the only people who used Twitter to any sort of effective Mike and me, if outcome. I may say so. Yes, well, <laughs> I'm talking about candidates, right, sir, right. candidates. I think the Montana GOP account was famously hated. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's my job. The, uh, it's okay. Chris Ship was on Twitter too. Oh my and word! Ship. <laughs> Ship and I go back a ways. Uh, he yeah, should we, come on the show because yeah. he'll he'll say something. <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, we have seen a growing number uh, of Republicans sort of dipping their toes in the waters of Twitter. Uh, Facebook seems to be much more popular with our uh, our candidates, as far as I can tell. Hmm. Um, and I, I guess I would be sort of at a loss to explain how that evolved, but possibly after the last session, uh, I know that I make a choice sometimes between whether I put something on Twitter or just Facebook based on the fact, uh, or based on whether or not I really want to talk, I really want to engage in a conversation with Democrats over this, uh, because there are, there are far more Democrats will respond to what I say on Twitter than on Facebook. Far more Republicans will respond on Facebook. Hmm. So for whatever reason, the social dynamic is that Republicans congregate towards Facebook uh, in terms oh, of our campaign. One more reason I don't like it. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you they're not using Google+. Plus, but Nobody is. No. <laughs> uh, don't feel bad. No. Uh, Even my nerd friends aren't no, using no. Google+. Plus. Uh, every now and then I put something on it just out of sympathy. I, <laughs> I you know, I... I like I say, there's a few more Republicans starting to use Twitter. You know, Representative Christy Clark is becoming a little bit active on it. 
Mike still, Mike loves Twitter. Uh, Mike mm -hmm. Miller, great guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, you see every now and then a tweet from one of the gubernatorial campaigns, but you see far more on Facebook. Uh, the Stapleton campaign has been much remarked upon for their Facebook endeavors. Um, They've been much remarked upon for a lot of things lately. Well, that's fully valid, but <laughs> uh, any campaign is going to be much remarked upon, good or bad, in some things. But yeah. I, I won't take that away from them. They've gotten some coverage of how successful they've been at attracting Facebook fans, and that you know that is something no one else duplicates. I think I the MTGOP has fifteen hundred followers on Facebook. Uh, the Denny Reberg official account has five thousand. The House account and the uh, and then there's Stapleton, who's got something like 8,000. So, you know, he has far and away been the most successful at attracting Twitter or Facebook followers. Wow. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I don't think there's any magic formula as to how it works. Um, there's a lot of, you know, just be yourself and you'll probably be okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what was I going to ask you? There was something about social media that had just tickled a thought. Uh, out of my head. It's I'm the worst interviewer ever. <laughs> Welcome um, to the show. Negative ghostwriter. Yeah. <laughs> I've been through worse. <laughs> so you've got this cycle is coming up. Obviously, you hope to be successful now. How does this work afterwards? Do they elect a new head of the uh, GOP? The party chairman is up for election again in June of 2013. Ah. Um, he is undecided right now on the subject of seeking re-election. Uh, you know, I think all of us are we're going to deal with November 1st and see if we're still alive afterwards <laughs> or exactly. if I die of a heart attack before then. Um, or drink yourself into a hole. <laughs> you have to take a shot for every hundred votes you're off. Oh, oh my <laughs> word. Um, so, yeah, the party chairman will be up for re-election in 2013. The, my position is appointed and serves at the pleasure of the party chairman, so mm -hmm. it's not inconceivable that uh, somebody might be elected party chairman who's had more than enough of me. And choose somebody else to come up. And all of this, of course, predicated on the whether or not I'm being the clerk of the Supreme Court. Right. <laughs> but I'm more asking about party functionality, not specifics of it. Um, our operation uh, is primarily a service and support operation. And it, if I were to leave uh, somebody else, you would not see that much difference. You might see a, a change in tone of what comes out over press releases or social media. Um, you might see the greater frequency of press releases, that has not been an area of priority for me. You, you know, you see a few small things like that. But by and large, we don't run the legislature, the legislature runs us. We don't run the Reberg campaign, the Reberg campaigns runs us. Um, it is a, we are a customer service operation mm -hmm. to Republican voters and Republican candidates and Republican officials. So because of that, a change in the party leadership, if it happened, would not really change all that much in how the party worked. Very cool. What's the difference in the roles between the chairman and the ED? Uh, the party chairman is a volunteer of position. Um, his primary task is raising money. Mm -hmm. you know, he does a lot of our relationships with major donors is basically what Will's job works out to. And then Will is also the, the grassroots face of the party. You know, he goes to Lincoln Day dinners and other people's political events much more often than I do. And... Um, there's a joke to be made there about the relative attractiveness of the two of us. Um, <laughs> I'll stay away from that joke. There's a reason we're doing this as audio only and not on camera. Face for radio, as they <laughs> say. In any event, so the party chairman is really much more of a uh, relationship builder, and I do the, the work. <laughs> no, sorry, Will. Uh, <laughs> well, so we've got the... Um, Obviously, the election's coming up. Obviously, we've got the summer coming up. What about your personal life? Do you get one at all? <laughs> um, and I know it's socially awkward right now because everybody's asking you about who's going to make it for the governor, uh, but... You know, I uh, will no, drought, no doubt attract some, uh, some flack for this in the fall, but I have made my position clear. I will be out on the opening day of bow season. <laughs> I will be out hunting. And y'all can suck it up and deal. You can do without me for one weekend. Um, I, yeah, yeah, you know, there, there's a fairly good community of people in the same profession that I am here in Helena, and so it's not too hard to find folks to hang out with here and there. But the problem with that is that you end up, um, you end up never leaving the office. 
you know, it, yeah. we're just, we're carrying on with what we were doing between eight and five, except now we're doing it in uh, the brew house instead of. <laughs> yeah, but there's a beer. <laughs> there is a beer there. Valid. And that can improve many things. Yeah. You know, for what it's worth, uh, a lot of my own personal social life uh, centers around my church. I have a great group of people that I spend time with on Sundays and other nights of the week. And that's, I, because I don't want to just carry on doing the same thing I do during the day. That's a good thing. So if you were, uh, you know, somebody who's interested in getting into politics, what's your advice to them? Um, <laughs> there's, uh, there's some funny YouTube videos about, uh, uh, and, you know, I, I don't know how these are made, but there's uh, that series of videos that people make which convert text to speech and have little mm -hmm. animated characters talking to each other. Uh, somebody saying, I want to work in politics. Great, go put up these yard signs. But you don't understand. I've watched every episode of The West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you want to be involved in politics, my advice is always learn what I failed to learn at first. Um, do the work you think you're too good for. Uh, when I was a young man, I thought I was ready to come back and be the party ED right away on my first day out of college when nobody had heard of me. And what I eventually found myself doing was pounding in yard signs and dropping literature on doors. And the people who work are the people the candidates want to have around. And my advice for someone who wants to be involved in politics is pound the signs, drop the literature. You will become valued based on helping people. And once you become valued because you help people, you slowly grow into the role you always dreamed of. You know, we all get into politics because we want to change the world. But it's, it's a slow process before you get to the point where you can do that. And it's, at some point, I will let you know if I ever find it. <laughs> so um, let's see. You've got the Twitter account, MTGOP. Do you have a personal one as well? I, I do have a personal Twitter account, at, at Bowen Greenwood. Okay. Um, you will find a certain difference between the two of them. One would hope. Um, and then, obviously, you're the executive director for MTGOP. Is it .org or .com? MTGOP.org is our website. Okay. Um, and my personal website is bowengreenwood.com. Okay. And uh, Facebook? Uh, yes. We, the party has a Facebook account. I also do. But, okay. And the, the writing campaign also has a Facebook page. So. And we'll include links to all of that. And I'm assuming you have some sort of fundraising that you're doing for the... Sort of. Sort of. Uh, you know, it's a three-week operation here. The fundraising is relatively limited for the writing <laughs> campaign. But I do have a, a Pyrrhic's account set up, and, a, you know, if folks are kind enough to donate, I will spend it on appropriate voter contact measures. Awesome. So thank you for very, very much for being on the show. I know that you were nervous coming on because it could be an attack thing, and I, I specifically stayed away from some subjects that are near and dear to my heart. One, because I get fired up and can't shut up. And two, because I, I don't want to put people in the position of attacking them on the show. The idea behind the show is to give everybody a chance to talk about why they're in politics and why it's important that they be in politics. And I find that after having these conversations with people, even people that ideologically I have nothing in common with and would never vote for, I'm much more calm about them possibly being elected because they're human, yeah. and, and I think it's important that everybody gets that chance to sit down and talk. So if you have any candidates that you feel should come on the show, by all means, let them know. Anybody out there who wants to come on the show, is involved in politics, or even just interested in politics, get a hold of me. Um, information is on the website at politicticboom.com, um, or you can find our podcast in the iTunes uh, podcast directory by searching for Politic Tick Boom, and that's it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much.